Please turn with me to Matthew 10, 16 to 39. Behold, I am sending you out of sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious as to how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but it cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Good morning. If you're a member of Pacific Hope Church, we want to invite you this evening as we will bring in, I believe it's 40 new members to Pacific Hope and 14 baptisms. So that is a time to celebrate, it's a time to hear um, testimonies of those that the Lord has brought to saving faith. So you can be here tonight at 6 o'clock. It is 6 o'clock, isn't it? 6 o'clock. All right, this morning we will continue our studies in the book of Revelation, as you open, if you would, to chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 8 through 11. And beloved, when you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, and if you're a true believer, you will suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, perhaps not physically, at least not at this particular time in America anyway, you will suffer somehow, some way. Um, you may be mocked. You may be ostracized. You may be cast out of your own family. But may this letter to the church of Smyrna be of great encouragement to you. One to return to time and time again, as you face opposition for the name of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord's words to the church of Smyrna read, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let us pray. Glorious Father, I come before you this morning. I'm deeply humbled because of your everlasting faithfulness to me, to your church, your people. Your people, Lord, throughout redemptive history. I pray this morning that you would encourage and build up those of the faith to rejoice when they receive persecution, ridicule, slander for your namesake. Build them up today, Lord, I pray. And those, Lord, who have walked in by way of divine appointment this morning that are outside the graces of saving faith, that today, by the hearing of the word of Christ, would be made alive and folded in to the one people of God. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. This church is the fragrant aroma of suffering for the name of Christ. The more they're crushed, the sweeter the fragrance. Now, as we continue our studies through the book of Revelation, beloved, you must remember that things are not as they appear in the book of Revelation. Things are not as they appear in the book of Revelation. We see the paradoxical realities of Christianity being revealed right before our eyes through the church of Smyrna. I know Jesus said you're poverty, but you're rich. Preceded by, I am the first and the last. I am the one, Jesus said, who died, but I live. The persecutors of this church claim to be Jews, and ethnically they are. Jesus refers to them as a synagogue of Satan. Their tribulation is going to end, but they will die, some of them. And remember, what he says to each one of the churches, he says to all churches throughout redemptive history. The setting is Smyrna, arguably the most sophisticated city in Asia Minor, modern-day Izmir in Turkey. It was referred to then as the crown of Asia, known as the most beautiful city of Asia Minor. Smyrna faced the coast of the Aegean Sea. Elevated above Smyrna was a circular hill, and it was outlined by a street that was referred to as the Street of Gold. On top of the hillside were numerous pagan temples, majestic buildings, so that when you looked at this hill from afar, it looked like a crowned jewel. See that? Crowned jewel? That's what it looked like from a distance. These pagan temples, majestic buildings, on this hill, as you looked at it from a distance. It was a place where the sciences and philosophy and the arts all flourished, There was a large library there and a monument to the Greek poet and writer Homer. But Smyrna was also the center of emperor worship. It actually won the privilege by the Roman Senate in 23 AD to build the first temple in honor of Tiberius. A few decades later, emperor worship became required. As it was said in Polycarp's time, many decades later, you simply pinch just a pinch of incense, along with the declaration, Caesar is Lord, 
you won't suffer persecution. So nowhere was life for the Christian more dangerous at this time than the city of emperor worship, Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh, a fragrant spice used to make perfume. And when the bark of a flowering myrrh tree was crushed, it gave off this fragrant aroma. Myrrh was one of the gifts bought by the Magi to Jesus when he was but two years old. Myrrh is what Joseph of Arimathea brought as he was there to take the body of Christ off the cross. And what's interesting, again, is that the more this church was crushed, crushed, the sweeter aroma of testimony for Christ was released. Notice your outline who the speaker is here. It's the eternal and living one. Verse 8, the eternal and living one says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. Notice, in the midst of suffering, he points out his eternality, that he, sovereignly beloved, stands over his church. The first and the last who's in control of all things. He holds history in his hands because it is his story, amen? He's separate and distinct from his creation, but all the while is intimately involved with his people. Sovereignly ordering all things, everything under his command. This is, of course, contrary to what open theism teaches. I don't know if you've heard that term before. They say that while people suffer and they go through trial and tribulation, that God is is as surprised as you are. This, of course, is how they mold him into being this sympathetic high priest. They strip him of his sovereignty. They strip him of his providential wisdom and they subjugate him to his creation, making him a mere shoulder to cry on. As though he is someone who knows no more about the future than you or me. Jesus never says, beloved, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen. But as we learn together, I'm going to be there for you. Blasphemy. On the contrary, he identifies himself as the first and the last, the one who is dead and is alive forevermore. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 9, You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Guaranteed. If he is merely a sympathetic shoulder to cry on, beloved, or simply a loving and merciful Savior, minus the sovereign author who rules over all things, then he's referred to as Lord who's powerless. Compassionate, but impotent. Now, it is Christ's eternality and sovereignty over and above history that becomes the comfort to these suffering people. It is the comfort to you. When you suffer for Christ. Smyrna was a place that was identified with a mythological figure known as the Phoenix, a symbol of resurrection. Smyrna was destroyed in 700 BC. It lay desolate for 400 years. And the uh, successors of Alexander the Great, quote unquote, resurrected this city. So the Smyrnians here would not have missed the illusion of Christ's resurrection, the power of his resurrection, as he addressed the church in Smyrna. So because of the struggles faced by this church, Jesus identifies himself here as the one who died and came to life. That's the spokesman. Now let's look at the suffering. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He does not say, I know your tribulation and poverty because, you know, I see it unfolding here. I know because I'm the first and the last. I know your tribulation. 
Tribulation is a very graphic word. It's a word that was used to, to, to crush a victim or to squeeze out one's life's blood. It was used of someone who would be crushed under a boulder. It's a word that is used to describe the pain of childbirth, moms. Tribulation, amen? Amen, sister. I can't relate to that, as you know. Their life was being squeezed out of them by the iron-clad grip of the Roman government. They also suffered economically. Poverty here figures, uh, signifies someone that is so poor, all they can do is pretty much hold out their hand as they cover their face in, in shame, hoping for a handout. Why did they suffer this poverty? A very quick answer, because it was the will of the Lord for them. Those of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel today would say, you're outside of the will of God, you lack faith. Just speak it into existence, brother. Do not listen to those guys and women on the TV for the sake of edification. The bottom line reason for their poverty is that they confess Jesus Christ to be Lord and not Caesar. G.K. Beale comments on this. He says, quote, It was almost impossible to have a share in a city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Those refusing to participate were seen as politically disloyal and unpatriotic and would be arrested and punished according to Roman law. You'd be exiled or face capital punishment. But genuine Christians could never call anyone Lord except Christ. You know, beloved, there are many situations in our lives today where you know that if you speak a faithful word for Jesus Christ, those you call friend, those you call friend may soon depart. You may be in danger of losing business as a faithful businessman. As a college student, you may be in danger of being ostracized and even mocked by your aggressive and insecure, by the way, professors. As an academic or a scholar, you may not be allowed to speak at conferences. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ always brings a threat of hardship. Faithfulness to Jesus Christ brings pain, perhaps not constantly, beloved, but as we live faithfully to the Lord, somehow, some way, you will suffer for his name. When we speak of a word for the Lord and we explain why we don't party with our co-workers after work, when we explain why we don't take a hit off a joint, when we explain why we don't laugh along with their perverted jokes, when you explain and give the reason why you reject same, the same-sex marriage agenda, it's the why that gets you into trouble. It's Christ. So Jesus here, he says, look, Although what appears to you, Smyrnians, as poverty and ruin is actually great wealth. You are rich. Remember again, things are not as they appear in the book of Revelation. You get to the church of Laodicea, it looks as though they're wealthy. It looks as though they're secure, but in the eyes of Christ, they're miserable, pitiable, poor, naked, and blind. So fighting against the tide of cultural opposition to the gospel, beloved, that's one thing. But having to face antagonism from those who claim to know God, who claim to know God is even more difficult. Notice the religious persecution that they faced. Second part of verse 9. And I know, says Jesus, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but they are a synagogue of Satan. So here we see the particulars of the church's affliction here. This is the main source of their suffering. The persecution here comes by way of slander, meaning to attack one's reputation. 
Such is the case of anyone, really, who wants to live a godly life in honor of Jesus Christ. The attack most often comes against your character. Stand for the truth. And see what rumors start circulating about your life. Just as they slandered the reputation of our Lord. See, in the Roman Empire in that day, you weren't able to participate in public life while remaining disloyal to the religion of the modern empire. But despite that, Rome understood the ancient monotheistic beliefs of the Jews and they had merited some acceptance in the sight of Rome. So this allowed them a certain amount of harmony within the Roman Empire. Christianity, on the other hand, was viewed as an upstart religion, which happened to be pointed out by unbelieving Jews, along with much slander. So as Christ's disciples were driven out of Jerusalem, launched into the other parts of the earth, Gentiles were being converted. Believers. So many ethnic Jews would complain to the Roman authorities that these Christians, these people of the way, they're not of us. And that's where the false accusations began to circulate. Slander. So the main problem was with those among them who called themselves God's people, i.e., Jews. These Jews were painting lies. They were stirring up opposition against those that were true believers. Jews who were boasting in their ethnicity were not, according to Jesus, true Jews. And the irony is that their attack against the church demonstrated that these ethnic Jews were not only false Jews, but they were actually the synagogue of Satan, as the words of Jesus Christ declare. So the true church, by implication, are his true people, i.e. his true Israel. Remember what Jesus said to those Jews in John chapter 8? I know he said that you're the offspring of Abraham, but you're not the children of Abraham. As a matter of fact, your father's the devil. Remember that? Here, a few short decades later in the Revelation, his response is the same. It's no different now. It'll be no different in the future. It's Christ alone who is true Israel. Christ alone is true Israel. You see, Old Testament shadows, beloved, have been elucidated, in other words, made clear under the New Covenant. All Scripture, everything, everywhere centers around Jesus Christ. So Israel and true Israelites are redefined by the one who is himself, true Israel. Amen? He is the true vine. Jesus is the true temple. Tear down this temple in three days, I raise it up. He is the true manna come down from heaven. He is our Sabbath rest, beloved. Jesus Christ. He's the mystery revealed. Go home today when you get time and read Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3. And you will see that the mystery revealed is Jesus Christ creating in himself one new man in place of the two. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. This is a good time right now, beloved. This is a good time to dismantle some scuttlebutt that has been circulating since we started our study in the book of Revelation. And it usually only takes about three people to do this, and they start throwing terms around that they may not know the meaning of. So I just want to dispel any of that today. So I'm going to digress just a bit in hopes to benefit you this morning. Amen? Number one, Some have said, John's teaching in Revelation is leading us to a certain eschatological viewpoint. Answer, of course it is. I've been the pastor here four and a half years. My hermeneutic has not changed, okay? So because Christ has come and we have the relevatory truth of the New Testament, my hermeneutic is the same from Genesis to Revelation. In other words, I see the Bible in Genesis no differently than I see it in Ezekiel or Isaiah or Matthew, 1 Timothy, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, or Revelation. Now, in six weeks or so, I'm going to go over the four main views of eschatology. Okay? I've been trying to lay groundwork. 
And I thought I've made it very clear that we believe that Christ commenced his kingdom reign at his first coming and will consummate that kingdom in the second return where there's a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? This is the kingdom reign of Christ, but yet in the midst of it, John said, I am your brother in the kingdom and what? And the tribulation. Our hermeneutic is Jesus Christ. One woman recently said, with a solid theological foundation rooted in the historic Reformed faith, if you're Reformed, truly Reformed, that means you're covenantal in your hermeneutic, the Bible, she said, becomes much more of an open book. And with this foundation, she said, I'm able to see the continuity between the Old and New Testaments and to understand that Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key to understanding the biblical canon as a whole. Amen, sister. Whoo, amen. Wait till we read the Olivet Discourse and then read Revelation in light of the Olivet Discourse. You'll be very excited about that. Second rumor mill, scuttlebutt. The pastors and elders at Pacifico believe in replacement theology. First of all, that label is attached by the opponents of covenant theology. And another uh, popular turn of the uninformed is that of supersessionism, meaning that the church supersedes or surpasses Israel. Okay. Please, I just want you to tune in now. The church does not replace Israel. The fact of the matter is that Jewish people who reject Jesus Christ are apostate from God's true Israel. It's a one people. Old Testament, New Testament, which I'll show you in a moment. You see, beloved, being born again in Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of true Judaism, whether you're Jew ethnically or not. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to who? Jesus. How do we know that? The New Testament. Amen? It's very simple. Therefore, the church of Jesus Christ is the consummated expression of true Israel. I often hear Christians say with sobriety in their voice, you know, those, those are God's people. The nation of Israel, they're God's people. Always side with Israel politically, no matter what they do, because God will take care of America as long as she sides with Israel. Beloved, please, please, you who are in Christ only from around the globe are God's people regardless of your ethnicity. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all what? one in Christ Jesus and if if you are in if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to promise say amen to that amen. heirs according to promise you see beloved it's grace not race I want to show as much compassion and love for my lost Muslim neighbor who literally lives down at the end of the corner than I do for the lost rabbi that teaches in the building next door. God shows no more favor for the lost rabbi than he does for my lost Muslim neighbor. The gospel's the same. You might enter in by different avenues evangelistically. It's the same. Now, Paul shows us in Galatians that all the promises of God come through Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, or seeds, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ, who is Christ. So, notice, the seeds, plural, children according to the flesh, are irrelevant. It does not say, and to offsprings, he says. What matters is the seed, the offspring. Singular, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all who belong to him are united by faith in him, whether they're ethnically a Jew 
or a Gentile from anywhere else on this planet. Are you with me, beloved? Amen? Amen. Most of you. We just studied the book of Ruth. Ruth was from Moab, a Moabite. Moab referred to as God's wash pot. Okay? Right. So here comes this woman. Your God, your people, Ruth said, will be my people. Your God, my God. Right? Ruth, the Moabite, was just as much of a true Israelite as was Hannah, Anna, Mary, or Martha. Why? Because she, not unlike them, was of Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. Ethnically, a Moabite. Spiritually, an Israelite. Get the picture? Judas, Iscariot, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin were ethnic Jews, but were not of Abraham's seed. Therefore, they were not true Israelites and they're in hell. Other than the Sanhedrin that repented that we don't know about. Amen? You get it? There has always only been a one people of God. There's always been a one people of God. There always will be a one people of God. Look at Galatians 6.15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of who? The Israel of God. Those who are in the true Israelite, which is Jesus Christ. True Israel. So the church doesn't replace or supersede Israel, beloved, but rather is the continuation or full expression of true Israel. Quite simply, the New Testament church is true Israel in her adulthood, just as Old Testament Israel was the Lord's true church in her infancy. Simply an expanded phase of existence. So the true Israel of God, his covenant community, has always and only been made up of true believers, always has been, always will be. That's the reason that Paul said in Romans 9, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So it's not as though the covenant community of Christians replaces the covenant community of Israel, but rather continues by way of maturity his one covenant people. question. Does the butterfly replace the caterpillar? No, it doesn't. The butterfly does not replace the caterpillar. It's simply the caterpillar in a new phase of existence. If you were to come to my house this afternoon and walk down the hallway that leads to the bedrooms, there are, there are close to probably 100 photos all framed on every wall of our family mostly of our children. Some of me, some of my wife, over the last 22 years of our marriage. But my mother recently sent me four photos of yours truly as an infant, as a three-year-old, as a second grader, and as a fourth grader. Now, let's say you come to my house and you look at those photos, and, and that day they called me Johnny. I was little Johnny Red. You would not look at those photos and point to me and say, hey, John Leader, the 45-year-old, replaces Johnny Leader, the infant. Or John Leader, the 45-year-old, replaces Johnny, little Johnny Red, the fourth grader. You wouldn't do that, would you? No, you would not do that. I'll answer it for you. You wouldn't do that. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. I'm the same Johnny Leader... Grown up, matured, and referred to by most now is John. John Leader is living and maturing in a phase of existence known as adulthood. Although my wife would beg to differ on some point sometimes. <laughs> I think she thinks we, she has three kids instead of two sometimes. You get the picture? Therefore, terminology like replacement theology or supersessionism misrepresents the teaching that the church is really the continuation of Israel, Jesus, of course, being true Israel. He established his kingdom when he came. I believe this to be the millennial reign of Jesus Christ to be consummated, the full expression of that kingdom, when he returns, new heaven, new earth. 
And all the while, we suffer tribulation. I, John, am your brother in the tribulation and the kingdom. One commentator puts it like this, quote, when we watch the flow of redemptive history and the storyline of the Bible unfold, we move from the epic of promise into the epic of fulfillment. God's people are no longer defined genealogically, and I would like to add to that, nor are they defined geographically. But they are defined Christologically, Christocentrically. Amen? Why then are there some that are confused when it comes to the church and Israel? Why do certain people believe in two peoples of God? Well, it has to do with hermeneutics. I, I, I think that it's simply due to the fact that some take a wooden literal approach to predictive prophecy. They insist that every detail of biblical prophecy must be fulfilled to the letter, leaving no room for symbolic predictions. Revelation, by the way, is full of symbolism. It is a, in a genre of, 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 of literature that is apocalyptic. In other words, wherever possible, you take it symbolically. They don't allow for certain predictions to have a broader scope of meaning. Fulfilled in one sense and then later to be fulfilled in a greater or larger capacity. It's wooden literal to many. Such as God's promises to a national people that finds their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Old Testament land promises that find their fulfillment in a new heaven and a new earth which is eternal. Think for instance about Genesis 13, 15. God said to Abraham, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring. Beloved, Abraham never received the literal land. Okay? Abraham never received the literal land. But those land promises are consummated in a new heaven and a new earth. We read Revelation 21 and 22. Now, when we get to Hebrews 11, listen to this. Regarding Abraham, chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When he goes through the rest of the list of the heroes of the faith of Hebrews 11, he gets to verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. It's Christ. As we examine how the New Testament treats old prophecy, or Old Testament prophecy, beloved, we soon realize that in some cases, the prophecy is fulfilled to the letter, such as the birth of Messiah, where? In Bethlehem. Okay? Okay? But we also see prophecy fulfilled in a broader sense or in a symbolic fashion. I'm almost done with this point and then we'll move on to the rest of the sermon, okay? I want to make this clear. Another example are the very last words of the Old Testament which read from Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, question. What does that literally say? that God will send Elijah. Now, I ask the question, what does it mean? Well, for 400 years, there's no prophetic voice after this prophecy. No prophetic voice in the land of Israel. And then suddenly, John the Baptist enters the scene. Speculation as to identity, his identity becomes widespread, so Jerusalem sends a de delegation of priests and Levites to find out about this character named John, about his identity. John chapter 1, verse 19 and onward, they asked him, are you Messiah? To which he replied in the negative, no. Are you Elijah? To which he also answered, I am not. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ obviously had something more symbolic in mind when he answered the question of his own disciples that said in Mark 9, they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, 
And they did to him whatever the people pleased, as it was written of him. Now, just as Old Testament Elijah suffered under Ahab and the wickedness of his wicked wife Jezebel, so too John the Baptist suffered under Herod and that wicked woman Herodias. Cut off his head. In Mark chapter nine, or Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So was he Elijah or not? The answer to the mystery is found in the Annunciation of John's birth by the angel Gabriel. Luke 1, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, John was not some literal reappearance of Elijah, but rather he came in the spirit of Elijah. So this explains John's denial, I'm not literal Elijah, as well as the Lord's cryptic or symbolic statement about John regarding Elijah. Amen? Now, the significant point to all this is how Jesus dealt with Old Testament prophecy. It doesn't have to be interpreted in a wooden literal sense. So all the Old Testament land promises to Israel don't have to be fulfilled literally in Palestine to one group of ethnic people. It is a one people of God who inherit the full consummation of the author and finisher of our faith, the one who's established as the kingdom and is yet to consummate, and that's a new heaven and new earth, beloved. So he did not insist upon a literal identity of Elijah, but in a most certain sense, John was Elijah. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the old one obsolete. Are you with me this morning? So these Jews, back to Revelation, who were boasting in their Jewishness were not, according to Jesus, true Jews. Because of their rejection of Christ and their attack against his church demonstrated that these ethnic Jews were not only false Jews, Jesus referred to them as a synagogue of Satan. And that the church, by implication, is his true people, i.e. his true Israel, whether you're Jew or Gentile. So God made one true church in the Old Testament. Again, I didn't misspeak. God made one true church in the Old Testament, and he has a one true Israel in the New. It's one family throughout redemptive history. I mean, likewise, not all who claim to be Christ are Christ, amen? True churches today can expect religious persecution, not just from the government, but also from apostate churches who are also a synagogue of Satan. So just as there were, 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 was there here in Smyrna those who claim to be godly Jews, there will be those today who claim to be godly Christians that are no Christian at all. You're in Christ or you're not. It is a one people of God. Now notice, can we move on? You're like, man, that was a load. <laughs> okay, when people start throwing out terms and they don't know what they mean, I need to clarify. Okay? And it's best to do it here just to get it all one shot. <laughs> now, behind the veil of this outward religious persecution, Jesus continues. It manifests itself physically, but behind the veil is the unseen battle. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now remember, beloved, in our introductory week or two, we did two weeks of introduction, Revelation builds upon Old Testament prophecy over and over again in imagery, constantly. 
So if we go back to Daniel 1, verse 12 and on, you don't have to turn there now, but you'll remember the story of the three boys who were tested in partaking of the king's delicacies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which was symbolic of pledging allegiance to the king. And therefore, they refused. They said, test us for 10 days. Okay, now what John does in the Revelation is he picks up on this language, and in the Revelation, it becomes symbolic for a short period of time. Some commentators speculate that these 10 days are symbolic of 10 successive eras, you know, of either Roman emperors or 10 consecutive stages of church history. But that seems to be more imaginative than it does interpretive. Just as a thousand represents a long period of time, 10 is symbolic, perhaps most likely for a short period of time. Could be literal 10 days. But in this day, to be imprisoned in Rome, you didn't stay long. Once you were in prison, you either awaited severe beatings and torture, and then you were released, or you were facing death, capital punishment. Jesus promised there's more suffering on the way. He offered no hope of deliverance physically, but that the devil was about to throw some of you into prison. Now, Roman prisons, beloved, were nothing like today's prisons where you get three hots and a cot and a college education if you're doing 10. Amen? They didn't, they didn't babysit criminals in this day. But notice, the Lord sets limits on suffering. He sets limits on your suffering. And for some of you, he said, the result will be, for some of you, you will be cast into prison, but be faithful until you die. (laughs) So Jesus is saying, this slander is going to continue. It's going to increase in degree. Be ready for more trouble. Being faithful to Jesus Christ in response to his his, his faithfulness to us, it will cost you in this life. It will cost you. It will cost you something. It may cost you somebody. But it will cost you. So Jesus goes on not only to speak about the nature of the suffering, but he also how to respond to the suffering that we bear because of him. Because of the Lord. So he doesn't evade or dismiss their suffering. He doesn't provide another avenue of of escape He doesn't give you an example of how to stop the slander. He never conceals the costliness of following him. It will cost. But he does teach us how to respond to it, beloved, amen? He teaches us how to respond. He says you will need these two things. Number one, you're going to need courage. Courage. Do not fear. Do not fear. This is not courage from where your strength exists. Some of you are strong in the area of finance. Some of you are strong in the area of athletics, academia. You're a smart gal, smart guy. So this is not courage in the flesh from where we're naturally endowed, naturally gifted. This courage is courage that comes from the abiding relationship that we're to have with Jesus Christ. Trust in him, abiding in him in the midst of it all. So the first thing you need is courage. The second thing you're going to need is discernment. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Tested. So as believers, we have an enemy. He operates in many ways behind the scenes. He wants to grip us with fear, paralyze us in discouragement as he brings threats against you. Not unlike the apostles who faced constant threats, ongoing intimidation. So we, not unlike them, need discernment to see past people and to see past circumstances. We had a couple men in this church that were, they weren't members, we weren't allowed to become members, but they adhered to a certain theology that really leads to a dangerous position we had our fingers on their pulse and we watched them closely and eventually frustrated them out of here for your protection. But it sharpened our elders, I'll tell you that. 
But the one who seeks to destroy the church, beloved, behind the seeds, is unable to destroy the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against her, the church. So we must be look, look behind human opposition here to the spiritual warfare we face, and we must don the full armor of God. How often, beloved? Every day. And if you go back to our studies in Ephesians, you will see that each piece of the armor protects your thinking and your emotions. The way you think and the way you feel. Finally, be strong, Ephesians 6.10, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So until we understand that we live in a supernatural world, beloved, that seeks to destroy our Christian life, you'll never be able to withstand real suffering for the sake of Christ. We do not wrestle against, wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers, forces of evil, unseen forces of evil. This is why Jesus said to Peter, get behind me what? Satan, when he protested the cross. See, the unseen enemy is the one who wants to destroy the testimony of the church. He wants to destroy the testimony of God's people. Oh, you're a Christian? You're not a Christian. You are not. You're joking with me. You're a Christian? Well, yeah. I would never have known that, your coworker says. Oh, that'd be terrible. So while testing and trials are used by the enemy to destroy the testimony of God's people, they're used by the Lord, beloved, to transfer the man and or woman of God, conforming us into the image of his son, oftentimes through persecution, trouble. It's been said that that testing for the believer is the polishing cloth that makes our graces shine. Did you get that? The polishing cloth that make our graces shine. So he wants us to be certain that he has a purpose behind it all. And he wants them to be faithful. He wants them to be faithful to the end and he wants us to follow in like manner. Amen? Notice now the summons. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Faithful meaning full of faith in him, full of faith in his word, in the midst of adversity. Trusting in what the word says. Because you see, our natural inclination, beloved, is to go back to our own resources, to go back to what we think best. And oftentimes in the time of trial, the testing in our flesh, our flesh will be tempted to go back to the last thing that gave us comfort. Isolating ourselves, perhaps. Self-pity, perhaps. My drug of choice, perhaps. The last thing that gave me comfort. But as we're full of faith in him, we'll shine as a light in the dark. In that he leads us then to thinking about the promises that he guarantees us in the end. Be faithful, he said, notice, unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, this is not a crown like a king. This is a winner's crown. That someone in the Olympian games or the Isthmian games would win after a race. It would be placed upon their head. Keep running, and I will give you the crown of life, the Stephanos, the laurel wreath. Just as Stephen, Stephanos himself, the first Christian martyr, ran to the end and he received the victor's wreath. Faithful to the end and you'll receive the same. Be faithful unto death if that's what I have for you. Some of you will be cast in. Now, what's the reproof for this church? Five out of the seven churches receive reproof. Smyrna is one that receives none. One of two that receives no reproof. Now, is the church perfect, beloved? Is this church, Smyrna, perfect? No, there is no perfect church because we're in it. Amen? Pacific Hope's not perfect because you're in it and I'm your pastor. (laughs) One thing is true. The persecuted church is always a purified church. Because when you're persecuted like this, the chaff blows away. 
blows away. Those who say they are and really aren't, they're gone, baby. Gone. So this church found nothing but favor and approval in the sight of our Lord. The crown of life is a metaphor for eternal life. And it's expanded in the next verse as the Lord concludes. Verse 11, notice the success. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we must remember here that the only thing that will deliver us from the fear of men, be it politically, socially, or even religiously, those who say they're Christians or not, is that deep down knowledge that through faith in Jesus Christ, the second death, final judgment, alienation from God into everlasting torment cannot touch a hair of your head because you belong to the true Israel, Jesus Christ. And you can rest assured that you will, you will be with him forever. And as Paul said, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8. Amen? Come on, somebody. Amen? He's there. So, death of this body, this body, your physical body, death of this body is simply the gateway of eternal existence with him who is the first and who is the last. That's all death is. You won't even see death in Christ. In other words, you're not going to fall into some dark, cold chasm of lostness or something. You will be absent from this body. You will be with the Lord. Amen? If you're here this morning and you don't know this Lord, you don't understand the gospel, I trust that God has you here by divine providence to hear these words. He's holy, righteous, pure. He cannot look upon evil. You are a sinner, not unlike this guy. You're lost. You have to be perfectly sinless to get to heaven. That's his standard. No one can meet that standard. But you see, the gift of God is in his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son to this earth 2,000 years ago as the Old Testament said he would. And Jesus upheld the law of the Father. And after he upheld the law, he laid down his life and he bore wrath. He bore the wrath of God the Father in his hatred against sin. So the sinless one became sin, having never sinned, but suffered as though he committed every sin of everyone who will ever believe. Your sin was imputed to Christ. Believe upon Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin, which means you must turn. You must forsake yourself and the imaginary gods of your mind. You turned from it you forsake it, you turn around and you embrace Jesus Christ, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life in all of his perfect righteousness is imputed to you. He becomes the righteous requirement of the Father in your place. Don't play games. Repent and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. Come to Christ. Between you and him where you sit today, and any questions you may have, you can see me or I'll point you to someone else that can help you. Amen? Now to conclude. Most of us, as Christians, if we were to write a letter to believers in the condition of Smyrna, perhaps a suffering church in India or China, it would likely be a letter of condolence, wouldn't it? But that's not how Jesus writes. Why? Because he's called his church, beloved, to pick up its cross and experience suffering en route to glory. <laughs> so rather than condoling them here, he teaches them how to rejoice in the midst of suffering for him. Suffering for Jesus Christ is divined in the New Testament, comes only to those who are identified with Jesus Christ, truly. <laughs> A couple came in to see me this week. Concerned, they came from another church, concerned 
because the mother of the wife, her mother is a practicing lesbian. They didn't want their children around that environment because they're raising them in the truth. But that mother who's a practicing lesbian said that, well, uh, you're not being very Christ-like. They're holding her accountable to her profession of faith as they ought to. Well, you're judgmental. Jesus hung out with sinners. Yeah, and you know what Jesus called sinners to do? Repent and believe in the gospel. Go and sin no more to the woman who committed adultery. Jesus would be hanging down at the pub. Jesus would be hanging at the strip joint. Let me tell you something. You never in the New Testament see Jesus hanging out in a pagan temple, which would be equivalent to a strip joint. Okay? Can we get that clear? Come out from among them. Repent and believe and you shall be saved. Amen? So as they stand for the truth, what they're experiencing is suffering from their family for the name of Jesus Christ, standing for the truth. And I hope they were encouraged when they left. That's the reality of what's going on in their lives. Because sometimes you'll sit there and doubt, beloved, man, maybe I am a little too critical. You know? Maybe these practicing, maybe they should be able to allow to marry for crying out loud. Who am I to say? As they all happen to know Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged, for what judgment you judge another, you yourself will be judged. Well, if you simply read on, Jesus says, judge. Between the dogs and the hogs. Don't give what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast what is holy before swine. How do you know who the dogs and hogs are? You make a right and proper judgment. Not according to appearance alone, but according to the word of God. You do that, you may suffer. You do it with love. But you stand on the truth. Because he's the truth. Amen? So he says, you will suffer. <laughs> A few decades after this letter was written, polycarp, which means much fruit, stood in the arena. He's about to be executed. He was asked, will you call Caesar Lord? He was Bishop of Smyrna at the time. Polycarp turned to the proconsul, boldly declared, 86 years I've served him. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul urged him, swear by the fortune of Caesar. But Polycarp replied, since you vainly think that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar as you say and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully, I am a Christian. The proconsul threatened, I have wild beasts, I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp replied, call them, for we cannot repent from what is better to what is worse, but it is noble to turn from what is evil to what is righteous. Then the proconsul threatened Polycarp with fire, but he responded, you threaten me with a fire that burns an hour and is soon quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment stored up for the ungodly, but why do you delay? Do what you want. Bravely, Polycarp prayed as the soldiers prepared the woods, O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we've received knowledge of you, God of angels and powers and all creation and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I bless you that you considered me worthy of this day and this hour to receive a part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ for the resurrection to eternal life both of soul and body and the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be welcomed before you today by a fat and acceptable sacrifice, just as you previously prepared and made known, and you fulfilled the deceitless and true God. Because of this, and for all this, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you, through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you, with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for ages to come. Amen. In the end, the Romans commanded 
an executioner to stab Polycarp. The record says that a great quantity of blood put out the remaining fire, and Polycarp bled to death. As Peter said, so that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the bride of Christ. We thank you for your one true people, that you have a one true people, because you as the one true God sent your son to bear the wrath and to bear the shame, to redeem the saints of old, and to redeem those yet born that have been called before the foundation of the earth. Lord, I pray that your church would be edified this morning. I pray that they be greatly encouraged. I pray those that suffer for your name today would be edified, built up, to continue to run with perseverance. And may we always, Lord, show love and show compassion to those that are lost. But Lord, as we suffer for your name's sake, may we run the race as did the church at Smyrna for your glory. Lord, may you be blessed by our lives. We thank you for the power and the ability to withstand such opposition. Bless your people today, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.